Hey folks, welcome to the Unsung Podcast. I'm your host Mark Fraser and I'm joined by two harmonic resonance frequency terminators. Yep, that's me. I'm Robocop and he is, um, who could he be? Macking me? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Do you know, I remember seeing that film when I was like a wee kid and I think I had taped it off the TV and I fucking loved it. I thought it was great. I thought it was better than E.T. Yeah, yeah, me um, too. And then I, I always remember it having like this nostalgic glow to it. And I remember the family coming out of the supermarket at the end and stuff. And then it was only like, you know, when I was maybe in my late, early 20s, I read about it. I was like, oh, what was that film that I fucking loved as a kid? And then it turns out it is one of the worst movies of all time regarded as like a huge flop. And it was also just a McDonald's advert. Yeah, the whole thing. The whole thing was just a, a giant advert. It was because of the what was it? What's it in um, ET? Is it M and M's or is it Skittles? M and M's. It's like the, yeah, the rival yeah, yeah. one did it, and then they optioned it to like different companies. Was it Dr Pepper that he drinks mm-hmm. in it or something like that? Mm-hmm. And McDonald's and yeah, it's fucking brutal. I mean, think how much my parents hated me as well because whenever we had a place in Stirling called Azad Video. Oh yeah, we had one of them in Allness actually. Yeah, had one in Glasgow. Yeah, there you go. So I used to go there, and you know that thing where the parents are trying to steer you at a different video, and you're like, "No, no, yeah. no! I want to get that one out." <laughs> Back yeah. in me, they're like, "Ah, oh, please, just anything else. <laughs> you, you can watch The Exorcist. We don't care." And I'm just like, "No, no, <laughs> macking me." Do you know what to see this top shelf of videos? Look at all these women. No, no, I want to see oh. macking me. That was it. Every fucking time, macking me. Although I did like, eventually transition onto Police Academy too. Uh, I, uh, yeah, <laughs> I remember uh, Police Academy two. The Police Academy movies were like Sunday afternoons, and then they were always a lot less funny than you thought they were going to be. Yeah, um, talking about not very amusing dystopian fiction. Uh, Fear Factory. Factory. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Patreon. Yeah, that's the thing. Um, we tried to we tried to give you the hard sell on a new project last week. We'll do it again. We can talk about that one, yeah, let's do it. So, uh, on the Unsung Group, which is a very exclusive place on Facebook, probably run by Russians, that uh, subscribers to the podcast are permitted access to, we take suggestions from time to time. One of the suggestions was, hey, how about you review some demos? And we were like, that's a fucking cool idea, because we love saying nasty things about people and making ourselves feel better. And we said, but in fairness, we should probably do that to ourselves first. So subscribers via Patreon are going to get access to a series of shows whereby we take demos, but the first one of those will be Mark, myself and David submitting our own first band demos to uh, some awful amount of derision, I'd, I'd imagine. In good <laughs> Deserved in my part, yeah. Yeah, to show that we're not above it, that we can take it. But what follows should be interesting. We will try really hard to treat your demo with respect. We'll treat it with the respect it deserves. <laughs> we'll say just enough that you hopefully don't subtract your minimum donation of two pounds a month. Yeah, so if you want to get in on that action, go to patreon.com forward slash unsung pod, starting from, as Chris says, two pounds a month, um, and then going all the way up to ten grand if you're feeling flush. Um, so we're in a part two of a two part yeah. uh, episode right now. What were we talking about? Fear Factory. Fear Factory. Yeah. It's a saga that has engulfed my entire life. <laughs> have, have a question. Have a question, right? 
just for you, Dave, specifically. So, at the end of the episode before the last one, which is uh, The Cold Vein by Cannibal Ox, you were very excited. You were very excited to be doing Fear Factory. Oh, yeah. Having spent some time with them, two weeks. Yeah. <laughs> technically, with them. Um, are you still excited to be doing Fear Factory? Uh, yeah. I just um, <laughs> I just only listen to two records. <laughs> I, I'm excited that I don't have to listen to anything after the year 2000. Although, like, we'll talk about it. And they're, like, there's not they haven't really done any terrible albums. And there's some like really good. Tri- whoa, whoa, whoa! <laughs> well, whoa, wait a minute. <laughs> no, I mean they do albums that are just Fear Factory. But um, yeah, we'll talk about them. But I mean, like, sometimes. We'll do a double episode or an episode and we've listened to a band so much that I'll be like, oh, I can't listen to them for months, but I'll, I'll be happy to listen to yeah. Absolute next week, kind of. Don't care. Oh, dear. I, I, I can't get enough of your factory. Consider me pulverised, man. I am. I'm demanufactured. But I, I do, I do recognise that once you start going through the albums and they get slightly faster or slightly more treblier or slightly more the same... Then exactly, that's the biggest problem <laughs> it, it can explode to your brain I'll maybe take three days off So where we left it last week yeah, We just done Digimortal and the band had broken up <laughs> For the first time Talk to me apart Yeah, that's right Yeah, basically They, they, they did break up though uh, And left behind them an unfulfilled uh, contract with Roadrunner Records mm-hmm. uh, and so Roadrunner Records ever the opportunists decided well fuck that for a laugh uh, we are going to release their aborted uh, pre- uh, debut album Concrete Uh, from 1991 recorded with Ross Robinson and until this point uh, cast into oblivion because the band had retained song rights Ross had retained recording rights they couldn't agree on it Um, so this came out uh, not all of the band agreed to it we don't know what that actually translates as I don't know who had and who hadn't I'm surprised if any of them agreed to it it sounds shit the drums are loose the vocals sound like Cookie Monster it's clunky old kind of deathy groove metal don't see the point other than the fact that obviously Roadrunner wanted to, to make a wee bit of a mint the cover's shit as well so you can tell that the, the not that the band's covers weren't shit anyway but the, the cover is shit in a way that's inconsistent with the shitness of the other covers that the band approved yeah um, so I mean does anybody have any real uh, constructive criticism I think it's quite interesting that this album, album got it basically was the thing that got Ross Robinson worked elsewhere because it sounds like it was recorded in a fucking jar <laughs> through a shoe. <laughs> yeah, like this led to him producing Corn, which led to him producing, you know, every alternative band between 1995 and 2002. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah, it, it does sound pish, doesn't it?
a lot of the stuff on Concrete was cannibalised because the band thought that this wasn't ever going to come out so mm-hmm. it appears in various forms in some of their other early albums uh, bits and bobs that you're like oh they've done that before and even some of the titles because mm. I think that had an album on it called Piss Christ originally which was then used as a title for a, for a later record but it's mince I mean it's fucking mince let's not you know but I, I, funnily enough it actually has a decent response from fans and even critically as well, it's like the, the old school fans quite like it because they're kind of precious about Soul of the New Machine yeah. in the early, grindier, kind of groovier days. And like, I, I think all music said, you know, a big upgrade on Soul of the New Machine, and it sounds like Helmet meets Morbid Angel. Um, I, I don't think that's a good thing <laughs> And it, yeah, it doesn't work No, I mean, you know, it's not a terrible comparison Because I do think there's a number of points in their career Where you can tell that they were I think they were quite big fans of Helmet mm-hmm. uh, And bands around that scene mm-hmm. But they've just tried to metal it up a wee bit But it, it just, it's not It's just not a, a good record uh, yeah. It's just not a good album um, And also Roadrunner uh, to, to make the money back Released Hate Files in 2003 Which is a series of B-sides, remixes and rarities Which is also not particularly good But, you know No, there's not a huge amount of standout stuff on that No But then they got back together (sighs) Well, well, sort of Some of them did Some of them got back together (laughs) Yeah, sort of Burton and Christian Old (laughs) Got back together And he became the primary songwriter Christian did Uh, Which is interesting, I think I think this album's interesting because of that yeah, so see, like th- this breakup was apparently fueled by the fact that Walbers and Herrera felt they'd been constantly sort of marginalised by Cazares. Uh, you know, when they brought ideas mm-hmm. to the band as a thing, the the ideas were sometimes outright mocked, but certainly more often than not, just completely ignored. Um, there was also a sort of issue with, I don't know if this happened before it or at the time but certainly Cazares maintains that Walbers didn't have anything to do with uh, Demanufacture and Walbers maintains that he did have some input into it into a couple of songs and some of the performances and Herrera says that Walbers was a fully integrated member of the band when Demanufacture was recorded it was just that because some of the lines changed he didn't have time to relearn them that Cazares had done some of the bass tracks but so there's there's different accounts of what happened there but there's clearly a lot of bad feeling kicking about in the band and a lot of like egos and I mean these are men well into their 30s at this point that are still singing about fucking comic book scenarios you know childish fucking anime style dystopian imaginings is they're not the most socially adept or particularly evolved persons I'm willing to wager um, on archetype um, so that yeah first record without Dino, mm-hmm. Dino, but Dino, a, Dino. <laughs> you got but fucking Jurassic a, Park on the brain, Dave. <laughs> there's, there are lyrical themes in this record that go beyond uh, James Cameron sci-fi movies, and a couple of them hard to like, believe. Slave labor contains references to self-immolation of a person against the corporate world.
but that was to do with them getting off Roadrunner. That whole that whole fucking like yeah. thing. That song was a thinly veiled metaphor for their uh, grievances with the way they felt they were treated. Cyber waste. Contains references to anonymous internet users who express haughty opinions. I'm reading this off uh, Wikipedia uh, <laughs> the only because screen. they are safe behind the cyber screen. But I mean, that's it. Uh, that's early to be having a song <laughs> against trolls. Like trolls didn't even ex- the term troll didn't happen then. And then archetype is directed at Dino. The infection has been removed. The soul of this machine has improved. Subtle. Like, yeah, fair play. Like, got rid of the main songwriter and we think we're a better band. This album isn't terrible. It's not. This is not a bad record. Yeah, it's not terrible. It's interesting that it comes, you know, after Digimortal, which was like the big foray into new metal, and then Fear Factory crumbled at about mm. the same time as new metal crumbled, I guess. And, you know, a lot of bands that hit it big in that, you know, 2000, 2002, just fucked off or became Linkin Park. And it felt like the metal bands that had maybe tried new metal, like Machine Head as well, um, we're coming to terms with, oh, maybe we are just metal again. And maybe we, we're not on a major label anymore, but we can just actually be the band that we want to be. And I, I think this does have some good tunes on it. The ones I've mentioned, like Slave Labour, Cyber Waste, Archetype, all pretty banging tunes. Like, heavy, pretty abrasive. I think Archetype really works uh, and like cyber waste big fucking bastard and it's got that offbeat crash mm. the yeah um, it's pretty thrashy that song it, it feels like a thrash song which is really interesting yeah totally I kind of think the band sort of retreated to a sort of safe space for themselves. I think they, they, I don't know, after the breakup, after that sort of Digimortal and throwing their their hand in with new metal a little bit, I I think they were just like, let's just go back to what we know works. And this album sounds like that to me. It feels safe. Um, I do think there's some bits... I mean, they were missing their main songwriter, so... Mm, Yeah. I mean, I think it gives away some of what the other guys listen to. I do think the helmet stuff is a bit more to the fore here and the um, prong, for example, as well. I think that mm-hmm. reference is, is relevant. More Slayer as well, a lot more Slayer. Aye. I also think like, that track Bone Scraper has a bit of Meshuggah in it. It's one of, it's one of the more kind of techy tracks that I've heard by them. Yeah. Um, but you know it's interesting as well that in hindsight 
and I mean just telling of the mentality of a lot of these guys because you think that it's Dino Cazares or Dino Cazares rawr, mm-hmm. um, that is the, is the prick here but it seems kind of like they all have the potential to be a bit I, th- I think they might all be pricks yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, but the Archetype album and the next album that we'll talk about now the the odious transgression uh, from 2005 have basically been ruled out of their, their catalogue uh, as not being legit Fear Factory albums by Cazares, but partly because he wasn't there, but just because he says they're not canon. Can we go back? <laughs> can I go back to something just for oh, two like seconds? That. I'm going to agree with you on trans- transgression, incidentally, but I just wanted to say that Fear Factory go back together the same year that um, Machine Head released through the, through the Ashes of the Empire, which is when which was Machine Head's big return to being an actual fucking metal band and stopped arsing about with new metal. Um, yeah, it's interesting that they like decided to be, oh, let's be better than we ever were. And then yeah. Fear Factory were like, oh, let's just be not as good as we were. <laughs> yeah, but also let's be a band again because cause some bands can apparently find their way back from the fucking doldrums on new metal. Hmm. And they were on the same label at the time, you know, but well, not that album, but when both bands kind of fell spectacularly from grace, mm-hmm. they were both on Roadrunner. That's a good point, yeah. So when they went into tra- when they went on to do Transgression, they worked with a producer that had done stuff by Korn and Alice in Chains. The the whole album has a really different feel. Um, and you know what? In, in in some ways, I've got a little bit of time for it in that sense, right? The thing is, a band with this, their resources, albeit they were off Roadrunner now, but a band with their resources should never be releasing an album that sounds like this album. It sounds dead sloppy in its production um, and its mix, and it's, it's muddy, it's very dark. The vocals are really weirdly mixed. Um, the overdubs, for example, are all over the place. They come in at different volumes and different stereo panning in a way that's really confusing. They don't sound properly like nestled into the, the stuff. Um, it's roundly despised in their catalogue it's bang bottom of almost every single fan list and magazine list of their stuff Um, but that all said I actually really quite like the first track in it Um, Uh, which one's that? 540,000 degrees Fahrenheit which I think judging by the lyrics is something to do with the heat of a, a nuclear explosion Um, I think Walbers and Herrera uh, do have a, a definite hard-on for helmet style kind of blockiness. Um, it's got more of an alternative feel and, and a lot less of the digital coldness. Like, it barely qualifies, if at all, as cyber metal. I think just the years, as I said, being ignored or sidelined by Dino Cazares has led to this sudden outpouring of ideas that have maybe been shelved previously. Um, they brought in a guy, Byron Stroud, of Strapping Young Lad, who then served as bassist for a while before also leaving in quite sort of stroppy circumstances, as he said, why would you continue to waste your time somewhere where you're not respected, I believe, which sounds like a kind of indictment of the whole band, not just any particular members. Um the album does plod a bit 
I think it's pretty crap but given my feelings on some of the later albums I think it's crapness compared to them is slightly overstated I mean it, it is so fucking despised um, it does have some moments that invite scorn <laughs> I mean it doesn't exist but this band tried really fucking hard to invent the genre of cyber grunge with the tracks <laughs> with the tracks Supernova Um, the the, the multi track vocals and that are really fucking rough, and I can totally appreciate why the diehards hated the record with stuff like that in it. Um, mm. Also, track nine, the fairly earnest cover of "I Will Follow" by U2. They, they, they said that they didn't have time to finish the album They said it's half finished Because um, of the pressure that was put on them To meet certain deadlines And I think that's why the U2 cover happened But even And the uh, Kill and Joke cover after it as well <laughs> Yes <laughs> I, I think the U2 one's the one that chimes just weirder for me Kill and Joke yeah. as I said Have at least got industrial credentials um, mm. I, It's just a funny one It really is I, just, I remember the video for Moment of Impact came out And it like started appearing on Crying TV or you know whatever was out at that time and it was i think it was just burton c bell sitting in a car and it was like handheld camera but it just sounded so bad i was like so confused like when this video and this single came out i was like why does it look and sound so bad it's like suddenly <laughs> they've just become an amateur band it was really really odd yeah shoestring budget yeah you know, it was quite interesting because wobbers hates this record as well yeah, he, he claims there was over 20 songs written for the album and there's only 12 on it two of which are covers so there's only 10 songs on this album and yeah he said that Burton didn't want to sing on any fast thrashy songs so they went down the plod but uh, that's that's interesting though because just it was about three years later there's a really revealing interview with Burton Seabell where he says that quote he no longer wanted to contribute to the violence and aggression uh, that he saw in the world uh, with the band's dark and violent themes and music. So he was basically like, oh no, I don't want to be such a downer anymore, man. Uh, I'm out. I mean, uh, that this is again one of these reality check moments where I'm like, fucking hell, musicians are so capricious. You know what I mean? It's like, it is just so like, a metal musician, like Burton C. Bell, with all his fucking stupid sci-fi dystopian morbid schlocky tech horror oh no the world's the world doesn't need us being all negative man there's too many bad things in the world it's such a fucking thursday night schoolboy misanthrope reaction that you're over by friday morning you know it's such a gothy bit of like teenage bullshit and by 2010 he's doing it again so what presumably the, the violence and aggression in the world needed topped up by 2010 so they were like they woke up in between that <laughs> I know but I mean he obviously decided man things are getting too rosy on the planet there's room for us to inject some Mary or fucking misery and violence again I have to pay for the mortgage which I believe that from here on in is what Fear Factory are doing Oh, certainly uh, But I tell you who's not paying for the mortgage That's Wolbers and Herrera Because they were disinvited to the reunion um, Stroud remained And they brought in a guy called Gene Hoglin Who 
is a total fucking legend. Yeah, we talked about yeah. him on Strapping Young Lad. The Atomic Clock. The Atomic Clock, yeah. Uh, also, other than Strapping Young Lad, he'd also played with Dark Angel, Testament, Death, whole bunch of like really famous metal acts and just renowned for his precision and, and his metronomic accuracy at, at high speeds. The drums are fucking superb on this album as a result as well. Um, at this point, there was a kind of divide, though, in the uh, legal world because Walbers and Herrera... They said they were still Fear Factory. Yeah, they they were feuding with, with Bell and, and Cazares because and then of... I, am I not right in saying that, so, uh, Bell, Cazares, and then Byron and Gene, this was supposed to be a side project, uh, or they were creating a new thing with guys from Fear Factory, and then they just said... Oh well, do you know there's two of us that were in Fear Factory and we're making Fear Factory music, so we should just be Fear Factory. And the other Fear Factory guys, they're not Fear Factory anymore. <laughs> now, well, see, I, I heard that slightly differently. I heard that um, Bell had pitched to Walbers and Herrera that he wanted Dino Cazares to come back in because they'd had a reconciliation. Right, but okay. Walbers and Herrera didn't want Cazares back in because obviously they'd had so many years of feeling like patronised and talked down to by Cazares that they didn't want him involved in the group anymore. Uh, so they'd refused, but also Bell wanted rid of the manager at the time, who was a woman called Christy Prisk, and she was married to Walbers, and so they didn't think they could get rid of the manager without also getting rid of Walbers. Um, and Herrera and Walbers seemed pretty tight, and also Herrera and Walbers didn't seem like big fans of Cazares, so it seemed like it just sort of wrote itself, this yeah. kind of weird scenario. Let's just remind ourselves, so these are fucking adults. But I mean, it's also this is the sort of thing that happens quite a lot with vintage bands, it's rockstar bullshit. It is rockstar bullshit. That's what I mean about musicians being capricious. They're so capricious. It's like so yeah, exactly. fucking infantile. So at, at one, so it seems that there are there may be another Fear Factory record written by Fear Factory Part B in terms of yeah, uh, Wobblers and Herrera wrote a bunch of tracks for this album or an album with Burton, and then they were no longer Fear Factory, even though they mm-hmm. said they were. So, um, but I mean, this is just obviously like giant children, you know. I mean, Fear, Fear Factory are a bunch of guys that's that, that struck it lucky and their band took off and they have loads of influence and a reasonable bit of money and certainly a lot of profile. And they just are, mentally haven't evolved uh, in tandem with, with their careers and they're just yeah. totally out their depth trying to like manage a situation in a mature But hey, way. It's, yeah, it's half decent record. Mechanize. Yeah, Mechanize is fucking great. Power Shifter, very heavy indeed. Yep. Um, absolute chug. Oxidizer is great. I think Christploitation is pretty good as well. Um, yep. I 
I was saying it sounds exactly like yeah, the, the verses sound exactly like anything from City. Like it's almost exactly like a trapping young lag song. That's probably because Aye, of the drama. Totally. Yeah. See, one of the things about this, all right. I mean, cause I think it's ironic because Cazares, as I said, he considers archetype um, as not canon, and he criticised it for being too similar to Fear Factory's early records and not taking enough chances. This to me just sounds like Fear Factory records. It doesn't take chances. Well, that, yeah, that's what's ironic. The next four records just sound like Fear Factory. It's totally nondescript. So what the fuck's he talking about? And I they mean, also can I just say the next four records they go into a theme in terms of their artwork they've got like the same logo and then it's like two f's pointing away but it made a metal just on a black background and they are all completely interchangeable there yeah. is no way of deciphering which one is which um and i'm i guess you could say that about the music a little bit but no to be fair mechanized half decent record uh, bell's been quoted in interviews that saying that he, he likes this album but he he th- Thought they had to do better with future records, mm. so he obviously has his reservations about it. Um, and well, he he wanted to go back into the concept album, uh-huh. yeah, and, and, and they did. Well, what they did was uh, they <laughs> oh decided to. Um, th- so they've got pretty much you know the best and most suitable drummer that isn't their own drummer, Gene Hoglund. So what do they do? They secretly program the drums with the help of some other drummer program it and record the album and Gene Hoagland, who is still officially the drummer, doesn't find out until the album is produced online and they've got a whole album without him, without any drummer and he's just like, oh what, what, why have you done that? And then so he leaves. And at the same time, Stroud the fucking bass player of Strapping Young Lad, leaves because he, like as I said, life is too short to spend pe- uh, to spend it with people who don't respect you because he's just fucking totally patronised and Cazares is going around telling people that Stroud couldn't play the stuff unmechanised properly. I mean, the fucking, these fucking guys, man. I mean, <laughs> what the fuck is wrong with them, man? I mean, this is this is the thing as well, right? You're saying like, they, they, they want to do a concept album, right? So The Industrialist comes out in 2012, right? This is this is one, and it's all programmed, and it's all techie, and it's really just Cazares and Burntsy Bell. And the concept... This brave new concept is literally exactly more of the same of the exact fucking concept that they basically had before, which is this kind of quasi-millenarian technopocalypse fluff. And, I mean, this one, I believe, is something to do with an automaton that's created to embody all of industry and becomes sentient by accumulating memories, and rather than saving humanity, it destroys it. Hey, look, they found their niche, and they're just doing their <laughs> I mean, niche. Honestly, it's like somebody like crowdsourced a sci-fi channel movie. <laughs> Movie on a Saturday morning at Forbidden Planet Like who the fuck are these people Honestly did, did, did literally nobody think to say to them eh, So basically this is the same as the last concept And also every second metal album written in the last like 20 years Which has been about what was it What were the subjects they said Like war, death, suffering yeah. I think the only one that is vaguely fucking like modern Is Global Warming I think creeps into the, the concept list somewhere But other than that It's the most unimaginative fucking concept record You've ever fucking heard That 
that was it. That's what they, that was the best they could do. Yeah, and they're out of ideas by this point as well, more or less. It's like Fear Factory by numbers. Then yeah. three years later, Gen X's. Jesus. Pretty much identical artwork, identical sound. Well, um, well no, no, no. Well, oh, wait, no, they've I, got a drummer on this one. I was going to say, yeah, so Genexus, terrible, but Genexus, they have a drummer. I will say of the industrialist, in its defence, that whole cold techno dystopian thing, at least it's programmed drums, so it kind of mm. marries thematically mm. a little bit. Yeah, it's like Catch 33 Mushuga, but... Yeah, exactly, exactly. Right. Catch 33 by goofballs, but, like, at least marries that way. What, like, with, with the next one, with Genexus, they just go back to fucking having a, a drummer. I mean, I, genuinely as well, seeing their catalogue, I was so fatigued by this point, like, I was so fucking struggling by this point. But again, you know, concept album, track titles like Protomech, Autonomous Combat System, Battle Soul for Utopia, Hacker, <laughs> Soul Hacker, the concepts of war, religion, and mortality. Fuck me, man. War, religion, and mortality are not a theme. It's the basic entry credentials to be a metal band is that you sing about war, religion, or mortality. That's not, it doesn't count as a fucking theme. Um, mm. And yet, the, the, the drums are real, but I mean, they're clearly so quantized and triggered to fuck that they might as well not be real. You know, it's all very well saying, all oh, we wanted to bring, as they did, all oh, we wanted to bring back a, a, a real drummer to get that energy. It's like, but you fucking quantized and replaced everything here anyway. It doesn't sound like a real drummer. It's just, this album is so fucking redundant. And it's also extremely boring, which is probably the greatest insult for an extreme metal album anyway. Yeah, no, it's it, it's boring. Got to number 31 in the UK album charts, this record. That's because UK's full of fucking idiots. Yeah, that's just because old metalheads who buy all Fear, Fear Factory albums, you know, buy it. Uh, and because nobody actually buys records anymore, so you only need about 2,000. They got on a uh, Nuclear Blast Records with uh, Genexus as well, which is the first time they've been in a serious record label since Digimortal. Oh, yeah, that's true, actually. Yeah, they were just kind of releasing records off their own fame rather than. <laughs> And then there was a six year gap And then they've released a new album last month Yeah so uh, Burton C. Bell recorded the vocals for it in 2017 uh, The band split up again <laughs> <laughs> uh, Now and then uh, some, some legal shit happened Now Dino Cazares owns the entire trademark to Fear Factory Which means it is effectively now just his band and no one else's Or yeah. whoever he wants it to be that's in it It's as if he's like a weird futuristic corporation <laughs> <laughs> he's turned into the enemy he's turned into fucking skynet yeah he has. um now i this album came out too recently to give it a proper listen and also i can't fucking handle any more fear factory <laughs> i gave it a proper listen so uh
Disruptor is pleasingly hefty. Yeah, it's quite nice. It verges on gent almost, which is kind of cool. Yeah, I'm into it. Injected Suicide Machine is um, kind of one of their bigger chorusy ones. It's like obsolete era Fear Factory. I feel like this might be a less boring record than Genexus, but I I haven't given it enough listens. It's got some of their gentiest guitar tones on it, and uh, mm-hmm. the vocals definitely have their Anselmo-ish moments as well. But mm-hmm. man, it's uh, again lyrically. Uh, I mean, it seems to be something to do with sort of cyber dystopian Terminator themes. Uh, <laughs> I mean, honestly, man, I I can, I can barely finish a sentence. It's 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 punishing. They're a fucking punishing fucking band. They really are. Right. Let's talk about that Goldilocks era when Fear Factory were fresh, where Terminator wo- Terminator Two was only four years old. <laughs> uh, Let's go back to twenty seven years ago. Yeah, nineteen ninety five. Twenty six years ago. Twenty six years ago. I've literally lost. I don't know how old I am for, anymore. For, if you're fact they exist in their own fucking their own fucking timeline, anyway. Yeah, where are we in 2021? That was quite a while after the apocalypse, wasn't it? The hunter killers are standing on skeletons and stuff yeah, like that. Totally. Um, anyway, so D manufacturer. Uh, let's go through it track by track and let's. Uh, get a bit excited about this band again. Mm. It's quite difficult, isn't it? I'll let you kick off the excitement then. <laughs> Well, I mean, it kicks off with... Oh, sorry, sorry. C- can I just preempt your excitement by guessing that the basic thrust is this, is that, yes, it's widely acclaimed and, yeah, fairly easily their best record, albeit not the biggest seller, but it's still more broadly under-acknowledged as a zeitgeisty metal album. Is that the the proposition? Uh, yes. Right. Okay, and just to remind the audience, this is a 26 and 29 year old man, respectively, with Burton and, and Dino Cazares, uh, writing an album about Terminator, the movie. Hey, look, it's easy to scoff with fucking hindsight here. <laughs> and uh, and just... Uh, Irony no, didn't exist in the 90s, Chris. This isn't a piss take as well, but just uh, to remind the audience, because it was in the first part of the show, the original mix of this album was rejected because it had too much focus on the guitars and they felt it was kind of sidelining the electronics. Um, and Fear is the Mind Killer, the EP that had come before this, was like a kind of remix album done by the guy from Frontline Assembly. And I think the band had really embraced this new sort of sense of like, we want to make the music more electronic and more techno And so therefore they remixed it with the guy from Frontline Assembly. And that's the mix that, that we all know and it kind of shows that the band had this new sense of direction on the back of a previous album uh solo the new machine that seems that was generally a bit more sepulture-ish as we agreed earlier also worth noting that they recorded this in the studio next door to faith no more and bon jovi um Mm -hmm. and they repeatedly had to stop the sessions because they were doing the playback too loud and bon jovi's uh, technician was saying that it was bleeding into the tracks of these days so uh that might be lurking in the background of that new jersey classic somewhere Mm -hmm. um 
Yeah, and as we mentioned also, there is some debate raging about how much Wolbers actually played bass in this. It doesn't really fucking matter. He says a bit, Herrera says a bit, Cazares says no. I mean, no offence to metal bassists, but the bass is possibly the least important (laughs) instrument uh, ever created on this album. Just ask Cliff Burton, yeah. Mm. Um, So yeah, track one, Dave. I mean, you've listened to Soul of the New Machine, you've heard this sort of god-fleshy, prongy band, and then Demanufacture comes in. Like, the production is so thick, perfect. The sound of those kick drums, just fucking absolutely monstrous. And then that Dino Herrera synchronicity of the kick and the chug that comes to define them. They're just so perfect at it. And it's a proper big, fast, sort of hardcore riff as well that comes in there. The synth comes in, like, the samples are properly synthetic and sounds of fucking factories falling down. It's thrashy, it's groovy, it's heavy as fuck. And then it's like, do, 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 like that big guitar line comes in uh, and gives it that epic sci-fi feel. Man, it's great. It didn't sound like anything else then. Like they merged so many sounds. That opening riff was number 19 in Total Guitar's list of the heaviest riffs of all time. Wow. Well, interesting. I mean, there's a couple of really heavy riffs on this record. I I, I mean, I think this is like kind of the template for an entire subgenre, this this one tune. Mm. Um, But I also think... To me, it sounds a bit like Metallica recorded in MIDI at points. (laughs) (laughs) But, hey. I like the I like the halftime bit around two minutes thirty five. I feel it's yeah. got a wee bit of a hardcore feel like that, which is cool. They toured a lot, the Agnostic Front and Madball and stuff like that. Sick of it all as well, I think. Yeah, so they were obviously and I'm suppose they're from California right so you can't really ignore some of the hardcore bands that were happening over there um, and all that crossover and stuff I think the end of it's pretty cool I call them power electronics because that's what they do really but it's just basically big fat synths but it's the synths haven't aged particularly well sound wise but then again mm. yeah they they are very 90s but yeah, yeah. Okay. Um, self bias resistor track 2 Fucking massive introduction point for a lot of people to this band. Um, I do what I set the scene by saying I don't think this album has anything like as much of a cyber metal sonic quality to it as the likes of Obsolete and some of the later stuff. But I do think, as we mentioned, not least in the fact uh, 
in the fact that it discusses the fucking Terminator movies, but um, the aesthetic is very much what lends the cyber to this. Um, so let's just get that out there. Um, but I think this is the most iconic track on it for me, anyway. Well, I mean, this is the one that I think Mark will probably say is the most Pantera-ish. Uh, yeah, so I'll, I'll, I'll read you the first two. I'll read you the first two sentences of, of of my note for this particular song, and people from Glasgow will understand this first one, and maybe people who are not from Glasgow. This song is pure fucking solid rock cafe material. It's the first <laughs> thing I've written, <laughs> and the second thing I've written is again really big Pantera vibes on this song, particularly the vocal, but the pure solid wall of chug. As well as as proper dime bag Daryl. I Mm. I mean, it kicks off like thrashy, and then like the Dino Chug comes in. It's like properly. It's kind of galloping. It's like Mm -hmm. like new maiden. (laughs) What? Yeah. What sets it apart is that little skip that Herrera puts in the drum beat. There's a little snare skip in there that those other bands wouldn't have done, and I think that gives it a slightly more techno-y feel. It kind of it leans into that sort of like old industrial vibe with that little beat in there. There's a really cool mosh part after the chorus, which is Aye. which which I really like, um, but, and then it's got a beat down. Yeah, it's got a beat down. A, 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 of a hardcore thing as well. It's a big halftime beat down. And then I like the structure of the song because it does that and goes back into the verse and that really works. And yeah, I mean, uh, to be honest, I, I really don't like his, his melodic vocal voice. It's very, I mean, it's really Pete Steele on this. I really like that it's buried in the mix in this because it really works for this album. Um, uh-huh. it, it really adds a, a, a layer to it. But man, this song is too fucking long. Way too fucking long. It's got two bridges, <laughs> right? And then and they're both pretty cool. And they should have just extended the second one and ended it after instead of fucking doing the chorus again and adding a fucking third bridge and then slowing down the riff at the end. It's like, come on, man. It's like, you don't need it to be over five minutes long. You really don't fucking need that. I don't, I don't know if Dave agrees. <laughs> no, I, I, I'm I, happy with the length of this because uh, it's just fucking great. Uh, Zero Signal is next. Now, this is this is the start of Carmageddon when they're all lining up and you see all the cars and the and the lights. And uh, this is uh, this is industrial rain and blood. This song. Yeah, yeah, no, totally. Or even like strapping young lad. Would it be? Is it all hail the new flesh? Maybe like do 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 do. Yeah. It's like that, it's got that big adrenaline, like kind of fun mosh sort of vibe to it. You know, I do think this one does help that cyber metal thing with the kind of prominent inclusion of mm-hmm. synths. Yeah. That, that, that's an element that maybe wasn't there quite so much in self Bias Resistor and sort of helps push the band even more aesthetically and this time sonically towards that, that tag and helps helps them stand out from the pack a wee bit. 
and I'd say it is pretty relentless and I'd say this is the one that's most has influenced Strapping Young Lad most I'd say mm. this song was uh, played over a fight scene in Mortal Kombat this, this, this exact song yes it was that's exactly the vibe and when they used to play live they used to play a sample of Finish Him from that film over this tune uh, then Replica, Replica. Which is actually the biggest one on this record yeah, in terms uh-huh. of plays, and I think it's yeah one of the biggest ones. I mean, it's got that sort of stop start staccato riff that sort of came to define a lot of cyber metal, but it was also then incorporated into new metal. Um, like big open chords with the pre-chorus and the chorus. I like that his clean vocals are pretty low in the mix. It works. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I, th- I think this song, that, that ha thing, that ha ha da 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 ha. It cracks me up how non-furious that ha is, though. You know, when you when you, <laughs> could, yeah, when you consider the, how huh. he, he could have really gone for it, like, Hah. but no, he's just like, huh. It's not like <laughs> someone shouted on him. I don't, I don't really get it. But uh, I mean, I think you saw the chorus in the song is shite. I don't know why it's so spunked over. Uh, I think it. Yeah. It, I think it's just a really catchy riff, and then people get that, and then they've listened to it so much they just start to give the chorus a pass. It's just yeah. you know, sort of. <laughs> that's what you want from your chorus. Mm-hmm. It's ignorable. Well, that's <laughs> all mainstream pop music is like. All right, we'll just play this enough, and then people will actually think they like it. Dave, have you never heard "Don't Boris get to the chorus"? That is the saying. <laughs> it's not yes to the verse. I don't know. Get in the hearse. Exactly. I'd, I'd written the same thing. Like, uh, the chorus vocal is quite dull, um, yeah. but I think this song and particularly the next song after are like hugely influential in new metal. Oh, the, definitely. New beat is basically a new metal song. That's a fucking corn riff. Yeah, like the one finger, three note, first three frets only. It's like a thrash riff, but it's like an angular, weaponized riff. I I honestly think this is the first techno metal song. Like I think this is like Ministry and Frontline Assembly and Steroids. Yeah, I know it's very Ramstein as well, but more intense. Loads of acid synths in it. Um, also, I think something that's interesting about this, and I think it was either Metal Hammer or Kerrang, but a remix of New Breed was the track that went on one of the cover mount CDs. Um, and that's 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 actually whatever I hear in my head when I think of this track before I think of the album version. Um, but it was totally fucking pounding as well. It's also there's absolutely no groove here. <laughs> <laughs> like this is a binary just 
ones and zeros. And then Head of David cover Dog Day Sunrise. Here we go. Fucking hate this song. Right, so like yeah they've just always got a fucking they've always got a cover um, Head of David was the Justin Broderick project before Godflesh yeah. yeah that's right and they weren't actually they were kind of gothy but this sounds way more gothy than it did And I guess it's like a sort of rock dance floor banger, but it's like hardly. It sounds like the fucking like it's like a weird sing garden tune at the start, that riff, man. And it's like the the whole thing with the organ apparently came from like an in joke, and it's just a really weird touch. Burton C. Bell playing that organ at the start. I mean, it, it's an interesting change of pace, but I think it's a pretty unremarkable song in and of itself. Yeah, I, if you're going to cover a song, choose something that's going to add more to your record. And also the fact that, like I said earlier on, I can't remember what, another cover, but they don't know how to do anything but loud. You know, they they play at one dynamic. They have no sonic palette, really. Mm. And so this is just a fairly relentless because, you know, they're playing with their plugged-in guitars and their massively uh, hefty kick drum. You can imagine, maybe this song might be all right, you know, with a mic'd up Fender amp or something, but... A sitar and yeah, yeah, yeah. Fuck a set it, of bongos. No, I mean it's uh, also I don't understand. It, it seems incongruous with the concept. This is a concept album, right? Why do you do a cover on a concept album unless the cover itself is a concept within the concept? Like maybe in your concept album, if a guy was driving to work in his dystopian future, listening <laughs> to the track. But I mean, why cover? Like, how does the how does the cover version marry with your concept? Or is in fact your concept just bollocks? Because you're just giant wings. Yeah. Uh, body hammer. Uh, Pantera-ish. I quite like that slow riff. It's a bit slurry, yeah. maybe, at times. I, I mean, for me, it's just like top 10 ever heavy metal riffs for me but maybe that's just because it was on the Carmageddon soundtrack but mm. I like it just takes all my boxes for slow chug yeah I like I like, like that slow riff there's actually a cool little drum bit where it kind of accents the offbeat which is like yeah. a nice wee odd touch in it which is cool yeah we see that industrial percussion effect that's the thing that gives it the Fear Factory edge I mean it's subtle yeah. but it's the, it's the only thing for me that really ties it to their their catalogue at this point because otherwise it hikes a pretty shit tune Well, you're incorrect. It's a fucking <laughs> belter. No, no, but can I just, just, can we just sort of distinguish between a good riff and a shit tune? You can have a good riff and a shit tune. Mm. Yeah. Agree. No. I don't know if this one falls in that category, but I do agree with the concept. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, maybe. Okay. Flashpoint, track eight. That's a fucking terrible bass tone right there. Oh, yeah.
Yeah. Oh, yeah. But I mean, sonically, it works quite well after Body mm. Hammer because it's a bit more thrashy, a bit more trebly, I guess. Um, Direct. It's got a lot of ministry influence in this song. Um, yep. The drum patterns would be more interesting, which I think is possibly why I'm hearing that. Um, again, though, I, th- I mean, I think it's competent, but I think it's kind of unremarkable as a song. It's got an almost Swedish death metal lead part before they drop out into the quiet bit towards the end. We know that Dino is particularly at this point in their career they never really did a lot of lead parts it was all just like solid yeah, never walls really of riffs. went past the, the sixth fret really yeah um, then you've got Hunter Killer HK HK Hunter Killer Direct Terminator reference. Yes. I mean, this is just a big fucking thrash riff. The band are just very, very tight. And I say the band, it's literally Dino and uh, Herrera. Because he's also playing bass. I just think this is that kind of midi Metallica again. Um, fast and cheesy, it, but it at least has a wash of synths, which helps sort of land it more in their personal terrain rather than mm-hmm. it just sounding nondescript. Mm. Uh, piss Christ. <laughs> the second Piss Christ, not the Piss Christ from the aborted first album. Um, I like the final Doomy chorus on this I like the sharp snare throughout uh, I think it's a good track Big keys Good solid Fear Factory track The, yeah. the, the, the trigger on the, the percussion The kind of industrial trigger thing that they use Gives the song a wee bit of personality I do mm-hmm. think that in the, in, at the early stages of the song There's a second batch of double kicks That sound sloppy to me Like they literally sound not as tight As most of oh. what this band put out Which kind of caught me off guard a bit um, the, uh, the vocal in this actually really reminded me of Sepultura um, yeah. And it's also got a sample from Terminator 2 Terminator, <laughs> yeah <laughs> I like the synth in it. The synth kind of acts like a lead guitar part in a lot of places in the song, which I think is pretty cool. And I mean, I totally. guess Piss Christ named after that famous work of art, which is nothing really to do with Terminator. It's really just, they're just fucking mixing their me- their artistic metaphors to fuck at this point, like a bunch of numpties. It's just a teenage name for a song. And then they finish on the nine minute long, A Therapy for Pain. And I mean, fair play, you got to admire their ambition on this. It's quite cinematic. Operatic, um, almost. Yeah, 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 yeah. It takes the themes, like melodic themes from the records and ties them into this sort of symphonic 
synthetic outro. And it work. I mean, for me, it works as a final track. It's like you know, you can imagine the credits going up. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, like, like Mark said, I do think the sound of the synths is pretty dated, but you know, it is what it is. Um, multi-layered harmonies was was good. They obviously spent a fair bit of time in the studio getting the vocals you know quite dense and, and complex. Mm-hmm. Um, it drops out. It's got a nice touch where it, it falls back to almost isolated vocals about three minutes twenty, and then everything comes back in. From 550, it's really just a kind of evolving synthy outro, sort of mm-hmm. like soundscapey thing. But I mean, mm-hmm. yeah, it's different. I guess to a lot of kids that had grown up listening to thrash metal and had sort of this had caught their attention they were getting exposed to something they probably hadn't been exposed to and I'm sure that some of them eventually developed a bit of a, a taste for quite a different style of music as a result of little adventures like this by the band. Um, so, yeah, it maybe opened doors for some other people. I think if I think it's the most... It's an oddly human moment on an album which is not very human at all and that's obviously the point of it, right? Mm. Um, I think I like the build-up towards the end. It actually feels as though they've thought a lot about the composition of this song more than the other ones probably because of the melodic nature of it and it feels quite gothic to me as well which is cool yep Um, best use of atmospherics in the album for sure oh yeah yeah so I mean to summarise my feelings on it right clearly I don't particularly like this album I don't particularly like listening to Fear Factory I don't particularly enjoy them but it's undeniably very very pivotal in the history of modern metal or metal in general because it's not even that modern I guess now um to me, I can't get away from the fact that the whole fucking thing sounds really childish and meat-headed. Like, it's got the the dumb, sort of lumping stupidity of Pantera married to this fucking 14-year-old infatuation with crap sci-fi pulps, sort of B-movie futuristic shit. I can't get past that. It's not sophisticated in any way, and, and it thinks it is at times, which kind of like fucks me off a wee bit. Um, I kind of thought this then, you know, at the time when I first heard Fear Factory, and I still kind of feel that way, and it doesn't have the tunes to get me past that, the way that the likes of Slipknot and stuff did, even though I knew they were numpties as well, I could really get into the, the fact they could write a hook. Um, as I said, I think like the likes of Resurrection on Obsolete, crosses that threshold for me and I can actually really enjoy that because I think the hook is good enough to get past the pomposity and the absurdity. Um, I mean, the sales are low, we'll give you that, Dave, and especially for its time. I mean, 1995, you should still be shifting millions of units. Look at Downward Spiral, as extreme as it was. You know, it was really shifting big, big numbers and we've covered that. So I can't very well say it doesn't deserve to to be considered. I'm going to sit in the fence simply because I don't like it. Um, I do acknowledge its status, um, so I'm not. I'm just. I'm just going to abdicate completely. I've no doubt. I, I do firmly believe both of you guys are going to put it in. So I guess I'm just leaving you to do that, so I can wash my hands of it. 
Yeah, I agree with Chris. <laughs> All right. So it's one person versus two on the fence. Basically, yeah, I don't like it. I, I don't like Fear Factory at all. This is the, one of the hardest hardest weeks I've had to do since fucking Interpol. <laughs> I say something. <laughs> um, so yeah, I mean, I understand like Chris says. I understand how pivotal this record is and how influential it's st- even still now. You know, new metal is making some kind of a resurgence, and I think. Oh God, space. Um, I think this is probably this is. I don't know if this album directly influences that, but obviously this influenced a lot of new metal bands directly. Uh, but I just don't like it. I mean, we all have our genres. Yeah, like, totally. <laughs> Chris, uh, you are into really miserable bass tone grunge. That's like really? what you grew up on. That's that's definitely Mark, consistent you with are stuff into I brought forward. I poopy farty <laughs> pop punk. <laughs> Um, <laughs> that was accurate And I I'm into Meat-headed metal Like mm-hmm. We all We have all expanded Beyond these genres That defined us As 14 year olds mm-hmm. um, But I guess we also Go back to those um, Intuitive Things within us That clicked then And they still click Now <laughs> um, <Poopy> farty <laughs> I just need I need to say about that comment By the way I fucking hate Lumbus, I fucking hate Blink-22 And no effects I never liked No no that I wasn't pop-punks. Poopy fart It was Was there not oh, a Descendants song That descendants. was about poops and farts Yeah it was literally farts was and poops. Oh, There's one song about it Yeah but you know Yeah that's the one I was referencing Well that's sorry. too bad then He's factually correct <laughs> um, <laughs> And you like Kiss mate So whatever <laughs> I fucking love Kiss Yeah exactly Totally true um, But I just Like I mean I literally I love big groove metal uh, I love rhythm guitar riffs that chug to fuck and Fear Factory I kind of just I forgot about them like I got into them as a 15 year old listened to them a bit and I was like yes and then Pantera took over and then I discovered all other music and then when I wanted to go back and listen to meat-headed chuggy metal from the 90s I was actually Fear Factory that I was enjoying more than a lot of the other stuff. Anyway, um, sorry for putting this, putting you through this. Uh, oh, as long as you, as long as you enjoyed this, I mean, thing. I did enjoy it. I'm just not ashamed. As long as it's not, as long as not a complete loss, then. So, so uh, you can go vote for this album uh, if you like Fear Factory or against it. Go to facebook.com/unsugpod <laughs> and it should be there. Is that correct? Is it on the Facebook? That is correct. Yeah, and I think this will go in. Yeah, I think a lot of our listeners are moshers or chuggers. <laughs> <laughs> the latter, definitely. Um, um, yeah, well, I mean, but, you, you know, look, that's the kind of people we attract. It actually tells yeah. a lot about ourselves. Um, right, Nexus time. A complicated series of connections between different things. Oh yeah, and it, we actually chose from the box of Next Eye one by you, didn't we? And it was Baby Hitler. Baby, Baby Hitler, Hitler. Mm-hmm. yeah, specifically. Okay. And we did debate the parameters of that without reaching any firm conclusion. And actually, I think I've kind of strained them a wee bit, but fuck it, Dave, <laughs> you're up first. Okay, so Christian Old Walbers, who... I remember I was chuffed like mad. He added me on MySpace uh, <laughs> in like 2008. Uh, but then I realised he just added everybody. Um, but he played bass uh, for a few times and for 
a few times. <laughs> Overall. For Fear Factory 1 and 2, I guess. But he also, he's a semi-pro football player. Really? Uh, yeah. Mm-hmm. He has played a few matches for Hollywood United, who uh-huh. also feature Billy Duffy from The Cult, uh, Vivian Campbell from Def Leppard, um, fucking Steve Jones, I think, from Sex Pistols owns Hollywood United. And they've actually played games and, and stuff like that. Another player who has played for them in a an exhibition match was uh, Frank LeBouffe, the former <laughs> France and Chelsea defender. Uh, Frank LeBouffe, upon retiring from football, he moved to LA, played for Hollywood United, Along Vinnie Jones, he was another one. Uh, and then he ended up going back to France and acting in a few plays and then has basically become an actor now. And uh, he played a doctor in the Stephen Hawking biopic, The Theory of Everything. Frank LeBouf. Frank LeBouf, the Chelsea and France defender. Fucking and hell. he was in, I believe it won some Oscars, I think. Five Academy Award nominations at least. And I think Eddie Redmayne won Best Actor. Uh, in the theory of everything Mm -hmm. also featuring in that film I mean it was all all just like the good English actors Uh, David Thewlis Mm -hmm. who um, has appeared in many many films Um, all Harry Potters I think he was in Dragonheart (laughs) fucking classic 90s yeah yeah and he's about to appear in a animated fantasy film called The Amazing Morris which is based on a Terry Pratchett book um, it's a sort of young adult thing, and there's David Thewlis, Amelia Clark, um, Hugh Laurie, and oh, I mean, like Rob Brydon, David Tennant, and Hugh Bonneville. Uh, Hugh Bonneville, who is best known from the classics Paddington and Paddington Two. <laughs> uh, Paddington Two is the second best film ever uh, on Rotten Tomatoes. Yeah, I know on Rotten yeah. Tomatoes, isn't mm. it? He also he at one point narrated. Silent Night, A Song for the World which is a music documentary uh, it came out in 2018 but he did the, the 2020 version English version and it was all about how the song Silent Night was written and like they report an organ broke down in a church in this little town Auburndorf and then they, there's just a weird sort of fictionalised narrative about the, the classic Silent Night Christmas Carol and how it was wrote and yeah, kind of weird romantic thing. It was written by, uh, or composed in 1818, actually, by a guy called Franz Haver Gruber. Um, and the lyrics were written by Joseph Moore. And, I mean, it's since become a sort of German and worldwide Christmas classic. Uh, Franz Xaver Gruber... Um, Raided Nakatomi Plaza. And- <laughs> <laughs> uh, he was a primary school teacher as well as... Uh, organist and ended up you know composing shit silent night was by far his biggest hit he was a bit of a one-hit wonder um he was um born in a little village called branau am in in upper austria uh, just on the border with germany just on the river in in fact and I mean, it's quite a wee place, but there's been some interesting people born there. Franz Havergruber, uh, another composer, Joseph Reiter, 
Will Schneider and Rudy Schneider were brothers who were famous in sort of the parapsychology scene uh, in the 30s and the <laughs> 20s and 30s. Uh, and a young lad by the name of Adolf Hitler was born there in 1889. And literally he was a baby when he was born. So that's baby Hitler. <laughs> <laughs> exactly on the money. That's good. Yep. Yeah. Wow, that, go. that village has quite an alumni. Yep. Uh, Mark, I heard you've got a one-hit wonder of your own. More or less, uh, but it's actually got a lot of philosophy in it, so it's actually not... It's actually quite long, but let's talk about it. Um, so D-Manufacture is not only influenced by the Terminator, but the songs Piss Christ and Zero Signal use samples from Terminator 2. Um the Terminator basically uses a thing called the Grandfather Paradox as a core tenet of the story. Do you guys know what the Grandfather Paradox is? Uh, is this the whole thing about going back and having sex with your grandmother? No. <laughs> it's basically it's a logical problem that arises... Wait a minute, did I just fall into another psychology trope there? Yeah, she absolutely did, yeah. Freudian. <laughs> Freudian. <laughs> so, uh, the grandfather paradox is a logical time travel. When I say logical, I mean and there's a problem with the logic of time travel. It comes from the idea that if a person was to kind of travel back in time to a time before their grandfather had children and kill him, it would make their own birth impossible, hence the paradox. Right, yeah. So the idea being that if time travel was possible, it must do something to somehow avoid the contradiction. So the grandfather paradox doesn't just talk about grandfathers, it actually talks about any change in the past. And one big variant of this trope one that's often used in philosophy and often used in the media is if you could go back and kill baby Hitler, would you go and do it? Mm-hmm. So that's one jump to get to that, right? But it's actually quite interesting <laughs> because one, one part of the paradox sort of posits that time moves in such a way that everything's predetermined from the start of time to the end of time, which means that you couldn't possibly go, go and do that. Um, another version of Paradox kind of says that if you were to go back in time and kill Hitler, um, you would change time so much by doing that on account of how many people were affected by World War II, you change the future in such a radical way that the very concept of time travel itself just wouldn't exist or couldn't exist because the conditions for it to exist would not ever arise. Mm-hmm. It's like it's like um, you're telling us this now, and if I go back in time to kill Weaver before he can suggest Fear Factory to save myself two weeks of suffering, I wouldn't know to go back and kill Weaver. Yeah. Yeah, so another way of doing it as well, I guess, is uh, if you were if you were to go back and kill him, um, you would actually remove the need to go and do it in the first place, kind of like what you like we just said there, Chris, which mm-hmm. means that it yeah, just yeah. would be a paradox. Mm-hmm. Um, obviously, some people posit that actually this could happen because um, it would just create a, another timeline. Mm-hmm. But some people think that this because of this para because of this paradox, it means that time travel itself is impossible and will always mm-hmm. be impossible. Um, Terminators play with this quite a lot, not just in the fact that. Um, well, that's sorry. Can I just interject here? That is the, the the time traveler paradox. Anyway, Stephen Hawking once had a very very famous party uh, mm-hmm. that was giant banners, cakes, balloons, everything. It was like time traveler welcome. And the point was he had this huge public party and he was like, well, if time travellers exist in the future, they're going to arrive. And so literally they brought all the media and people out and obviously nobody turned up. And Stephen Hawking was like, seems pretty likely that it's not possible. But then he later, I think, had a slight change of heart. 
Yeah, yeah I mean, uh, if you think about it, if, if if something happens in future and as most of society is destroyed and a lot of the records of society are, are, are kind of destroyed, like the Library of Alexandria, and then society evolves again, like, say, say 10,000 years in the future to invent time travel, it might never actually have the knowledge to go back and do, to go back to that one location. You know what I mean? They might live in a post-talking world. Yeah. Um, but... Terminator plays with this idea so obviously the whole conceit of the first Terminator film is that John John's father is Kyle Reese who he must send back to make sure wait, that wait, I mean, I mean it sounds a lot like there's a lot of interesting themes yeah exactly coming right? out of Terminator exactly. here exactly. if only exactly. a band could explore <laughs> these themes in depth for its entire career <laughs> over the course of multiple albums I mean it's, I, I guess we should make that band guys we should totally yeah. do that um but the final point I want to put on this is that Terminator plays with this again in Terminator Three. So, for example, Judgment Day still happens, even though they avoid, uh, even though they avoid the conditions of it happening in that film. So, which is another way of getting around the paradox by saying that time will always find a way to do what is destined to happen, regardless of what you do. Well, time finds a way. That's yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. That's the crossover with Jurassic Park that we all. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's also funny you mention that, Mark, because that's uh, it's, it's almost like dominoes here because that's going to lead on to my one. Nice. Um, time finds a way. Uh, for man, it, it was very good. Thank you uh, for your TED talk. Can be yeah. found on <laughs> right. YouTube. Um, Fear Factory's uh, obsolete album art was by a guy called Dave McKean. Uh, Dave McKean has also worked with Alan Moore, Neil Gaiman. Uh, he's done stuff for bands like Dream Theater, Skinny Puppy, who we mentioned quite a bit. Um, and he also did the artwork for the Fat Duck Cookbook by Heston Blumenthal. <laughs> um, the Fat Duck uh, is, I believe, his three Michelin star restaurant in Bray. Mm-hmm. Is that right? Um, so one of the dishes at his uh, Fat Duck uh, is called Sound of the Sea. Um, which was on sale, I think, around about 2007, or it was introduced in 2007, um, which is some like, dr- I think it's like dried kelp, seaweed, it's got baby eels, sea urchins. Uh, it's all served on a fake shoreline uh, with sea spume, which I believe is the sea froth, and edible sand. Um, and then that's served on a glass top box full of real sand alongside headphones and an iPod playing seagulls and wave noises. <laughs> All right, <laughs> there you go. Uh, the iPod was invented by a guy called Tony. <laughs> by a guy called Tony Fidel. Hey, fuck you. That is a good. That is a good <laughs> fucking Nexus hell. link. Um, the iPod was invented by a guy called Tony Fidel. And I Steve- can't. Bl- you don't let me use movies. <laughs> you just used about eight movies. I just went from iPod to iPod. <laughs> right. Uh, the iPod was invented by Tony Fidel for the third time uh, and uh, developed by Steve Jobs. At Apple, uh, Steve Jobs stepped down, um, albeit he worked up until the day before his death. He stepped down in 2011 and was replaced as CEO by Tim Cook. Uh, in 2019, um, at the American Workforce Policy Advisory Board meeting, Donald Trump, the then president, referred to Tim Cook as Tim, Tim Apple. Apple. <laughs> <laughs> On July 4th, 2017, uh, NPR tweeted as they do every year, uh, excerpts of the Declaration of Independence, 4th of July, obviously, American Independence Day, um, and they do these multi-post tweets, you know, long threads. Uh, Donald Trump supporters went absolutely fucking bananas at it because reading the tweets in isolation, they took them to be NPR 
attacking Donald Trump because it's all about, you know, this uh, prince is an enemy of democracy, blah, blah, blah. And they just started going berserk at NPR saying, oh, you know, you're really partisan. This is why the media isn't taken seriously when, in fact, NPR was only tweeting the Declaration of Independence. Um so uh, one of the names signed on the Declaration of Independence belongs to a guy called Roger Sherman. And Roger Sherman's great-great-grandson is a guy called Roger Sherman Hoare. That's H-O-A-R. Uh, he was a senator from Massachusetts uh, from 1911, or he served in the Senate uh, Massachusetts from 1911. He also used the name Ralph Milne Farley. Ralph Min- Milne Farley was his pen name. Right? And, and Roger Sherman Hoare wrote a lot of different things. One of them was a short story called I Killed Hitler, which ran in Weird Tales in 1941. Now, I might add 1941, I think it was the June or the July edition of Weird Tales 1941. The war hasn't even been going on that long. This is the first known incidence of the killing baby Hitler storyline, the, the, the time jump. Um, and in that book... Hitler's cousin goes back to 1899. Now, that's what I'm saying, Dave. It's a bit of a stretch because technically in that story, Hitler's nine or ten. But Mm -hmm. I think it still qualifies on principle. Um, Goes back to 1899 and strangles him to death in a forest. But then wakes up in the new future, being addressed as the Fuhrer by a different array of like SS heads and chiefs and realises that he has supplanted the Fuhrer in the future as the new Führer, and it's, you know, he's become the dictator, time finds a way. Mm. Time finds a way. He was obviously leading his, philo- his philosophy, that man. Yeah. Mm-hmm. There you go. Well, uh, you don't have to listen to Fear Factor anymore, sorry guys. Yes. You're free. <laughs> uh, what are we doing next week? Not free this podcast though, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Uh, so next week, uh, jaded as we all are by that experience, we are going to undertake the the, the, the light task of a mixtape based around the concept of double albums. <laughs> <laughs> There's some easy lifting. Um, so, so which which Biffy Clyro album are you doing, Chris? <laughs> is that is it opposites? It's called. Yeah. Do I have to choose? Uh, well, so we're each going to pick our favourite double album. We'll do a little bit of preamble. In, in the episode about, you know, the history of double albums, what does and doesn't qualify. I want to make clear, what doesn't qualify is just an album that was too long for one piece of vinyl. Um, this has to be a conceptual double album, um, you know, and so that narrows it down quite a bit. But we'll, we'll dig into the history of that a wee bit, see how far back it goes, and I'm sure the, the prog era will throw up quite a few. Yeah, that's uh, that's your homework, guys. Double album yeah. time. Better get that Prince buzzer. Better get that Prince, that Prince buzzer ready, Chris. Aye, aye. <laughs> no danger. It's an easy week's work for you, Marky. Eh? Oh yeah. I better try and find that CD copy of uh, Cypress Hill. <laughs> <laughs> um, the nexus for it shall be. You can do the new metallic album, Dave. <laughs> so oh, fucking hell <laughs> courtesy of our listener Catalyze in Canada uh, Lassie the very smart dog oh interesting right okay, okay. Yeah. cool that's what we got to look forward to that and a myriad sort of new demos being submitted by new subscribers who want to hear us reviewing their demo for one of the bonus episodes uh, as we've been giving you the hard sell we'll do it one more time 
We're going to do a series where we review people's first demos and it better be your fucking first demo. Don't try and trick us. We'll know when we listen. We'll be like, that's a seasoned shit band right there. <laughs> um, and to start things off on the right foot and we're going to put ourselves in the firing line and we're going to do each of our own first demos by first bands uh, and probably like a trio of fucking absolute gimps. Yep. That'll be fun though. Yeah, it'll be fun. As if we don't already. Yep. That was a long week. I've seen Scotland get scalped. I've listened to more hours of Fear Factory than I ever thought I would. Uh, I need a break. Okay, well, off you go. <laughs> <laughs> I'll see you soon. Bye, guys. Bye, folks. <laughs>